So if you listened to the last episode of Renegades and Mavericks, you heard me mention my incredibly successful career as a soccer player growing up, where I scored a total of zero goals and I quit after five years. But really, I wasn't like most kids growing up. I never played Little League or Pee Wee football and really never pursued a sport that took place on a field all the way through my senior year of high school. That being said, I was always active in my physical education classes and out playing games with my friends as a K-12 student. And in my fitness journey as an adult, I really wanted to explore and learn all that I did not know about sports and physical education. So I started my journey of physical education history with the one expert who could tell me what it was like teaching physical education starting the 1960s and 70s, my dad. The late 60s and early 70s were a turning point for many things. I mean, culturally, colleges changed, uh, co-ed living situations. Everything was being questioned, especially in the late 60s. And in the field of physical education, prior to that, it was based off more of a fitness-based military-based. We had just come out of multiple wars uh, with World War One and II. Uh, the Vietnam War was you know, in progress at the time. Starting in the early 70s, there was a new trend called uh, movement education. Just to be clear, my dad isn't just some random guy who likes talking about the history of physical education. His name is Robert Oates and was a K-12 physical education teacher for 35 years in upstate New York outside Albany. And movement education just started to look at human movement rather than just, you know, let's do this for sports or let's do this for training for military or just let's do this for physical fitness. Again, fitness was the component to prepare the country uh, for a workforce and for a military force. In the early 70s, uh, many of the uh, women's sports that we know today didn't exist. Uh, women had intramurals at best. And starting in the mid-70s, you started to see, along with Title IX being passed, you started to see women's sports. And that translated over into the physical education field. Suddenly, the expectation was we're not just making the girls take physical education because, well, the boys do, but we were now preparing um girls for the athletic field, but also accepting girls as having human bodies and needing human fitness and needing human movement and how to do that. That trend through the 70s was a battleground. When I got my first job in 74, I was handed a curriculum, very sports-oriented, the idea that from first grade on, we were going to play a few games, but we were going to start training our young students for the athletic field. And that was an expectation of uh, athletic directors. And part of the problem in the, in the field of physical education is that the supervision is usually the athletic director. They're in charge of the sports program. You would think it goes hand in hand until you try to make a change away from the sports model and more towards a human movement model. And that's where some of the friction uh, exploded. Uh, between some of the new teachers coming out, like myself, I got hooked into the idea that there's lots of ways to move and it's not just through uh, sports skills. 
I asked him next to take me through the 1980s and the 1990s and what shifted in the curriculum and sports that were being taught. You, you saw phys ed offerings that you never saw in the 50s and 60s. The biggest shift was more towards lifetime sports. So units offered were not just basketball, football, floor hockey. We started to get away from that and started to do courses, especially at the high school, courses that dealt with winter survival. We did orienteering, how to navigate maps. Uh, in that process, you're, you're walking all over campus and sometimes all off campus with compasses and trying to figure out where you are and create situations. So useful skills once they graduated. And so we started looking at lifetime sports, uh, things to do after we got out, because that's when that's when human beings really need exercise. It's not when they're teenagers. The idea that if we're going to stay healthy as a country, we need to have activities that we can do. And you just can't pull 11 people together in your neighborhood when you're 45 years old and go out and play football. And our goal was to was to get people interested, to at least become exposed. So that somewhere down the road, they felt confident in themselves, in their skills, whatever it was, or at least having done it once in a high school setting. If it got offered locally at a gym or locally at a YMCA, they would say, yeah, I can do that. And then they go pursue that and they become an active person for the rest of their life. The other thing that pushed um, a shift was the idea of giving grades for physical education. And so I was very much against using fitness as a grade. I wanted using, I wanted fitness to be in and of itself a desirable goal for everybody. Your life will feel better. You will look better if you are physically fit. And that is like one tool in your toolbox to become a better human being. So Robert's approach to teaching and engaging K-12 students in physical education was through the foundation of movement rather than the idea of sports. I wanted to know how he got both kindergarten students and high school varsity football players to be an active participant in the classroom. When I, when I mentioned the word football, if we were doing a football skills there was some boys and many girls in the class, and this was elementary, who said, I don't do football. I hate football. When I did a dance class, if I mentioned the word dance, the fifth grade boys would just fall on the floor and throw up. People were pigeonholed already. They were prejudiced in what they liked and disliked. So I started trying to disguise what I was teaching and becoming a the idea of why am I teaching dance? Well, I'm teaching dance to improve their rhythm and their timing. Um, yes, I'd like them to be exposed to some foreign dances and, and become a little bit more diverse in their, uh, their knowledge, but I want them to be able to improve their rhythm. Can they walk on a beat? Can they dribble on a beat? And so I started doing rhythm activities versus dances. We did dances too, but we just slid it in and around. And with football, I, I never mentioned the word football, but when we did hand-eye coordination and foot-eye coordination and timing and balance, uh, we would break all of these moves down, whether they were sports moves or other moves. And then, you know, we would throw a football off one leg, off two legs, off two legs standing side by side, 
off two legs spread apart. So they would learn about a base of support and balance. And then we would do things with strength, power, and leverage. And we would throw only with our wrist. And then we would throw with our wrist and just our forearm. And then we'd throw with our wrist, our forearm, and our upper arm. And we learned about leverage. And really, great athletes can do things that others can't because they have really explored all the possible ways. We'll hear more from Robert later in the episode, but I wanted to speak with a physical education teacher who is not only currently teaching, but is coaching. And not just coaching, but coaching a sport I never explored, football. And I was put in touch with Jerry Flora, a pre-K-12 physical education teacher outside White Plains, New York, and who has been an active football coach for middle school through college students. And I asked Jerry his path to becoming a physical education teacher and coach simultaneously. The coaching really resonated the teaching because initially I was I wanted to be a teacher. I never thought about being a coach, but because I decided to get into coaching, I thought to myself, well, the only way I could coach is if I had a teacher's degree. So it, it's, it's interesting because how it originally worked out, it didn't work out. It kind of worked out the other way. And then, like I said, it worked out the best because the teaching part was great because I was always dealing with, I, I like dealing with the K to six population. The coaching part was nice because I was dealing with the seven to 12 population. So I got the best of both worlds. I wanted to explore with Jerry what has really changed in physical education over the years and even into now. You know, when, when we were in school back in the 70s and 80s, it was encouraged that you play multiple sports. Um, you know, coaches didn't care. Like, I, I literally would go from football to basketball to track. There was a little bit of a gap between uh, basketball and track only because of the way the seasons was because the track was outdoor and with snow and stuff. So um, where nowadays, you know, players seem to think that, you know, it has to be a, a job. Like I, I, and I had players at William Patterson that would always refer to football as a job. It's not. It's fun. It's supposed to be fun. You know, these guys that play in the NFL, I mean, that's their job. But they still make it fun. So I think one of the things that's changed now is, you know, a lot of kids nowadays only play one sport because their coaches, you know, frown upon it. So I think from that's one thing that's changed. And I think from a phys ed standpoint, well, now I, I, I just think the phys ed is just, you know, some kids just kind of go and they're just there. And to them, it's a pain in the neck to go take phys ed. And, you know, they'd rather be out in recess or something. Or So I don't think it's, it's, it's as much a feeder as it once was. As a phys ed teacher and a coach, Jerry is known for this idea of diversity in the locker room. And I asked Jerry... Uh, really in depth, what does that mean, and how can we better understand that so we can apply that to our phys ed programs in our schools? I wish the world's eyes could see through the through a football locker room. I played in high school on a on a team that was predominantly it was predominantly Asian, African American, uh, Hispanic. You know, it was never for me about color, and I learned that over the years, growing through coaching, and coaching made that even more solid. People don't realize you spend so much time with these guys in the locker room. You know, we go to training camp. So then you're, you're there for the week and it's football, football, and football. That's it. So you don't have a choice. I mean, that's you even think back to remember the Titans, how that whole thing played out. They took them to training camp. They, they learned about brotherhood until they were able until they came back to what the real world was. 
I preached as a coach, family, team, unity. One of my slogans was together everyone achieves more, which is what team stands for. And one of the things I used to say at one of our first team meetings every year was whatever you have going on in your life, when you come here and you come inside these walls, we're one big unit. So you have issues. We're, we're all the same. So you got a problem, come to me or we'll, have, we'll talk it out, but we're a family. And, you know, we, we broke down. And, and I think over the course of time, we had our trials and tribulations. And I wonder sometimes, I'm not political, you know, I wonder sometimes if people would just go into a football locker room during halftime or watch pregame. I mean, what goes on is just an, an amazing feat. And you got to teach them how to how to be with each other, connect with each other. Because at the end of the day, if you're playing guard and the guy next to you is playing center, you have to trust that the guy next to you is going to do his job. Because if he doesn't do his job, then guy gets in the backfield, you lose the game. So how can schools embrace the idea of diversity in the locker room to best serve their students? Take guys in those situations and use them to speak to other people. Like those people should be the people should, that should be speaking to other groups. Like come into my football locker room and take my star receiver, Joel Rivera, who came out of high school, drafted by the Milwaukee Brewers, came to William Patterson, became an all-star, got a tryout with the Jets, finally got his degree, you know, has a bad home situation. He's got a daughter, you know, and, and he needed that family because he knew outside he didn't have that. I wrapped up speaking to both Jerry and my dad, Robert, about what stigmas we see around physical education and what next steps we can do as individuals, but also as K-12 institutions to eliminate this stigma to help students succeed in their physical fitness journey after high school. You know, I I think that people need to embrace, you know, what what phys ed really is. I mean, you know, now, like I tell my kids, all the kids I have, you know, always refer to phys ed as gym. It's not gym. I didn't get a degree in gym. I got a bachelor's in science. I coach in a gym. I don't, you know, that would be the same as calling me football field. And that's, it's not, it's it's the gym. So I I think that the perception, and now obviously the curriculum of phys ed's changed so much from what it was when we were in school. Now it's about health and wealth. It's about movement science. It's about yoga. It's about mental awareness. You know, they get into the, to the opioid crisis and all those things and health and, and stuff. Whereas like when we were growing up, it was just about, you know, you, you learned about, you know, it wasn't so much in depth like it is now. So I think that if, if kids could have a better understanding and I, and I think that the other thing is just having more fun. Physical education teachers we do not have uh, a positive reputation. There's a, a saying, it's ruthless. Um, if you can't do something, teach. If you can't teach, teach phys ed. Real slap in the face. In our programming at college, we, we go through uh, six credit hours of anatomy and physiology. We go through kinesiology, which is the study of of human movement and movement in general. We do experiments in the lab. We do tests and measurements. There's a lot of science that we go through. And oftentimes, our programs, unfortunately, out in the schools, end up just to be farm systems for sports. 
And in the process of doing that, we leave behind all those students, which I got to say that 40 to 50% of the students that would go through our programs, and it's probably true for other subjects also, you know, 40, 50% of the students probably don't like anything to do with, with English and literature and nonetheless, they take it. I would like everybody to walk out of physical education classes going, that was the best thing I ever did. I can't believe I just learned that. And I'm sure every teacher wants that. We tend to lean towards the sports. It's still being used as farm systems, which leaves so many students behind. Despite our efforts to offer uh, subjects like Project Adventure, which is climbing and trust and, and rope courses and things like that, that was great. It's hard to find that in many areas once you're out of school, although that's increasing. If we don't get to teaching useful and relevant material and getting people to not just play games, but analyze human movement. I've heard comments from people. I saw high school kids just walking around the track today. Is that their phys ed class? Yeah. That's a sad commentary. Imagine a chemistry teacher taking their class out. And while they're walking around the, the track, they're saying, take a deep breath in. That's oxygen and nitrogen. Keep walking. <laughs> you know, it's, it, we have to do better. We have to say to ourselves, am I worth my salary compared to all the other teachers in the school? Am I doing as much as they are doing? And more importantly, are my students walking away with new knowledge that they didn't know before I stepped in? You know? To learn more about Jerry Flora and Robert Oates and their events they both organize around physical education and movement, you can find all the information at our website at renegadesandmavericks.com. Renegades and Mavericks is a production of Deergo Collective, script and hosting by Kevin Oates and project management by Claire Clausen. And now it's time to thank a teacher. I want to thank Fred Elliott, who was my principal's of technical design teacher at the University of North Florida. He taught me everything I needed to know about getting and doing my first job and went above and beyond always, even when I realized that I didn't know anything about what I needed to do in my first job. And he came to my rescue more times than I can imagine. So thank you, Fred. I'll never forget it. Hi, my name's Chloe, and my favorite teacher was Miss Tweedy because she always read us books at snack time, and she was really funny and kind. To submit your thank you to a teacher, you can email an audio recording to content at dirigocollective.com.